Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. I'm Juan Zarate, Chairman and Co-Founder of Fin. On this episode, a very special conversation with Apollo Ono, the great American Olympian. His life as an Olympian reinventing identity and entrepreneurship in the digital age. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the, on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been proven. Welcome back to FinCast. I'm really excited to have Apollo Ono on with us today. I know we're going to have a great discussion. Um, Apollo, it's great having you on. I'm going to give your bio for those who uh, don't quite remember your storied Olympian history and everything you've done. Uh, folks should know who you are. Um, the most decorated U.S. Winter Olympian of all time. Gold medals, silver, silver medals, bronze medals. Uh, competed in three different Winter Olympics. You know he's incredibly fast on the uh, skating track, the short track. Um, Apollo, you've done quite a bit in your life, uh, and you've become a real megastar, um, and you've used your influence for good. One thing I'll just mention for those who are dancing aficionados, <laughs> Apollo Ono, if you don't remember, won Dancing with the Stars in 2007. It was season four. He was a huge hit. And it's such a big hit, they brought him back for season 15. So, Apollo, it's great having you on and really an honor for all of us at Finn to have you as part of this podcast. Oh, I appreciate it, Juan. That's a really nice intro, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be here to speak with you. Thanks, Apollo. Well, there's a lot to talk about. You know, first, what I, I think our audience would love to hear from you is, you know, how you've been, you know, thinking about your life. Uh, in the in the post Olympic stage, that is to say, you've had enormous success. Um, you've become a huge television personality, a sports broadcaster, an author. You're working on a book, another book now, and and you've kind of thought a lot about identity and reinvention of yourself and and others. I just wanted to sort of hear from you on 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 that, and then talk about some of your current projects. The world of the Olympic space is one that is pretty unconventional, as you can imagine. Uh, on one side, we have, you know, an athlete who trains his or her life for approximately four, sometimes eight, sometimes 12, sometimes longer years of uh, an Olympic cycle. And that identity that is tied to that athlete and individual is is kind of like your first love, I always say. And when you retire, either by choice or because you were injured or because you aged out, the reality of having that great divorce occurs. And so that first identity that you had that taught you everything, showed you you were strong, um, everything about discipline and hard work, you're now having to transition into a new world that seems unfamiliar and uncertain. And it's also challenging because you, you're just not sure what you're good at. And so while for myself specifically, I went in circles for a living, right? Like I wore these like aerodynamic outfits and we trained every single day to shave thousands of a second off of our times. And then like a snap of a finger overnight, there was no more structure. There's no more coaches, no more team. And so that transition for me 
I was semi-prepared for it. I also was deeply in fear of never finding a passion as much as I had for the Olympic space. And so I did the first thing that I knew was to just start exploring. And I'm a big believer in in kind of trying to get immersed, immersed in my environment. And I began my kind of entrepreneurship journey and learning and winning and making mistakes, falling down and getting back up. And it's been, you know, looking back, it's now 10 years since I retired from my competitive athletic sport days. And the lessons that I've learned and the people that I've met and the worlds that I've seen have, and I could write a book about them so much so that I actually am. Um, and so that, that transition was was challenging and fun. And I learned so much. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because when I was in the bubble, when I was in the Olympic bubble, nothing else in my world mattered. And then when I when I was released out into the world, so to speak, now I was seeing the world in an entirely different light on the international stage. And I, I spent a tremendous amount of time in Asia um, kind of exploring. Yeah, Paul, I, and I want to come back to that because that's where you and I intersected talking a bit about the future of finance yeah. and digital currencies and crypto in Asia. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. But, you know, just a commentary from my vantage point, you know, you've been remarkable, uh, not just as an Olympian, but but after your Olympic career, uh, I think you're advantaged by the fact that you're incredibly smart um, and charismatic. So that helps quite a bit. But you're also introspective. I uh, found, found it interesting. Uh, you helped with this new HBO sports documentary that explored some of these mental health challenges that Olympic athletes face to, to face exactly what you described, which is that transition from that intense uh, environment and identity into something else. Uh, that, that's called The Weight of Gold. And I know that that's now airing from HBO Sports and you participated along with Michael Phelps and Jerry Bloom and Sean White, Lolo Jones, uh, Sasha Cohen, other Olympians. Do you wanna talk about that, that documentary? And, and how, how you think about that, especially given the dislocation that athletes may be facing with the postponement of the of the 2020 Tokyo Games. Absolutely. So the weight of gold really was kind of peeling back the curtain on the Olympic realm and showcasing kind of the psychological challenges that exist within the Olympic uh, U.S. Olympic teams, particularly those who've taken their own life, athletes who have had significant depressive situations and suffered from long-term depression and not having access to the resources associated while also being externally signaled. And it's not a complaint and it's not a, a, a bashing of, of the USOPC or anything like that. It's merely just a statement of like saying, hey, look, everyone has looked at us as athletes as being these superhero figures. But the one thing remains true is that we're actually just still human. And so what you show on the outside as a poker game sometimes has nothing to do with actually what's going on in between your ears. And that was something that I have experienced as an athlete during my competitive days. Never show pain, never show weakness, never show the insecurities and self-doubts that you have. But inside you have them and they're real emotions. And so I think that peeling back of that layer was the public's first time to have insight into the minds of some of these athletes, what the resources that we normally would think would actually be there. And then also the financial implications of pursuing a sport that perhaps is not your traditional American stick and ball sport. And so while sponsorships and endorsements and speaking engagements, those things can be lucrative and they can be very powerful for an athlete. You're talking one out of a hundred gets that opportunity. And that's the reality of this space. And so 
I think that's also why we fall in love with sports is in especially Olympic sports is because we know the athletes aren't doing it for a salary or a contract or a financial gain. It's the purity and the love of what they're trying to do and go and represent the United States and try to win medals. But there's a weight to that. And there's always a consequence to everything associated. And so, you know, my input was really from the experiences that I've had. I think the lack of resources that were available. And also, I think overall, a lack of planning. Now, this was 10 years ago. I think the USOPC has set forth some initial guidelines and some steps to try to improve that. But it's a really unique situation. And uh, it's something that I think many athletes have faced so much so that when I spoke to some of these athletes who have won gold 10 years ago, and most recently, in the much as even the last end of 2019, I had conversations with them. How is your life? How are you doing? How are finances? How is your internal compass and your true north? Where are you at with that? And sometimes some of these athletes are saying, look, you know, it may look like I've got, you know, this great real estate portfolio or I'm doing well on my job. I feel lost and I feel empty. The only thing keeping me around is my family. And that was very scary to hear that from people that I have spent 15 years training alongside for many, many years. And so that kind of consideration really ignited this idea around there's athletes who need help. There's people who need help. And that forms, I think, just parlays directly into what's happening even right now with, you know, the, the pandemic and, and this global uncertainty around, you know, people losing their jobs, losing, losing opportunities and trying to figure out what's next. And I think that that mental health and, and illness and awareness around this realm needs to be talked about in a way because not everyone is built out of granite. Not everyone is built to be stoic in nature. And while there's some that stand tall, oftentimes more than not, when you really peel back the layer, there's something there that they're just not willing to talk about. And so, you know, showcasing that vulnerability was something that I think it gave a lot of the athletes strength and it also showed the Olympic space in a light that probably has never been seen before. It's a remarkable insight, Apollo, into the, the mindset of Olympians and the challenges of transition and, and the identity uh, and the reinvention that comes along with it. I, I want to focus on on your reinvention and the way you've been an entrepreneur because I think it's been uh, you've been incredibly successful um, in what you've set out to do. And over the past decade, you've obviously been around the world. You've been in the limelight still, uh, but you've also seen the transition of of countries and economies, and, and you've been you know curious about those yeah. things. Can you can you talk to the audience a little bit about? kind of your entrepreneurship and, and what you've seen and been most interested yes, in? absolutely. So, so my entrepreneurship actually began when I was still competing as an athlete. And this was around the 2003 to 2004 era. I still had six more years left in my career. And I just became fascinated with what I saw other professional athletes, not Olympic, what professional athletes were doing with their careers when they had retired. And I was just interested in just trying to find ways to extend that curiosity beyond what I normally thought was only focused and centered on the Olympic space. And so when I did retire, Juan, in 2010, the first thing that I did was I was spending time in Asia with friends that I had met throughout my Olympic career and exploring a wide variety of different opportunities and businesses. And that's everything from trying to get my hand in the manufacturing business, even understanding and having a hand in the rare earth minerals and, and mining sector to understand what the, the kind of trickle down effect associated with those materials are, why there was this massive trade spat between China, Japan, the US, this kind of loss of this technology since the 80s. And 
I just became fascinated because if you imagine, I was like a baby being thrown into the world and all of these things, I had no idea even existed. I didn't know that my iPhone and my, and my, my car contained some of these minerals and elements, nor did I know how they got here. And so that began this process of me um, from the first time that I stepped foot inside a place like South Korea or Japan or, or mainland China and seeing, I'll, here's a story for you. It was 1997 and 1998. We were at a World Cup. One was in Harbin, China. The other one was in Beijing. Mm -hmm. And Harbin is kind of northeast, very cold area. And we would walk from the hotel to the ice rink because it was, it was a quite short walk. And I remember the day that we arrived on a Sunday, by the time it was Friday, the following Friday night, uh, they had started to place these bricks, right? Hand lay these bricks on the sidewalk to create the sidewalk. And from when we arrived mm -hmm. on Sunday, it was incomplete. By the time we, we started the competition on Friday, it was completed. And that was my first look into thinking, I was like, that will never happen in the US. I don't even think that's feasible. There were so many people <laughs> working 24 seven. And that kind of sparked something in my head when they also told me, hey, this ice rink is only three years old. I mean, number, the ice rink looked like it was a hundred years old, but the fact that they, had, they said they had created it like in something like three and a half months, I was just completely blown away at how fast and the furiousness that existed in that dynamic of that culture and, and economically. Now, I didn't know anything about investing or any of those things at that time. It was just, it was just an insight into thinking like, wow, uh, I'm not sure many Americans, let alone people around the world, see kind of the, what, what's happening here on the potential. Fast forward to 2008, Beijing gets the, gets the Summer Olympics. They do their opening ceremonies. It was the first time I think many people around the world saw China in a light other than, you know, sending these copycat replicas around the world. And the people are like, oh my gosh, these people have been doing incredible, incredible transformations across many different sectors. Couple with the fact that they can isolate and mobilize millions of people at a finger snap was, I think, both it was awe-inspiring and it was also frightening for many people. And that also initiated an interest for me to explore, I think, these opportunities that existed in underserved communities like some of these remote villages throughout Southeast Asia and, and the mainland China. And that was really, I think, just, it just sparked curiosity for me. So, you know, I think unlike what a lot of other people would have done in my position, and, and I was very blessed to have these opportunities, Juan was, you know, receiving these opportunities to learn about speaking engagements, talk about the mindset, talk about my philosophy towards sport and business and life. Um, I just, I was, I was curious. And so I was exploring the world and it was in a place in time where it was just so interesting to see the rapid transformation of a country like that. And I remember going back from 2008, or sorry, uh, 1998, 1999, and going back to China again, you know, after I had retired in 2012, 13, 14. And it was, it was completely unrecognizable. And I'm talking like, you know, hundreds of skyscrapers all over the place. And then the same thing for places like you know, Southeast Asia in Vietnam, in Thailand, in the Philippines, in, in Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia. It just was, was a world that was so alien and foreign to me, but that was the allure was, wow, there's so many people here. They're so interesting. They're so also progressive in the way that they approach some of these new age technologies that are kind of coming into the, into the world. And um, I just, I, I fell in love. I think part of that was because my sport short track speed skating has always been dominated by South Korea and China and Japan, 
some Canadians. Um, but overall, it was a it was an Asia specific and dominated sport. And so we had South Korean coaches, we had a Chinese coach, you know, we had, you know, entrances into these worlds and cultures that I, I don't think I would have had if it was a different way. That's fascinating, Apollo. Fascinating on, on several levels. That that last point is really interesting. Sort of the the cross nationality uh, and, and regionality of sports and how that many ways influence where you were looking next or, or how you were viewing the, the environment. Also, you, you, your ability to have been, especially given your longevity in the sport uh, and the levels at which you, you, um, you participated, your ability to see the transformation of these societies in some pretty fascinating ways. And, and just the final point, the, your point about 2008 is, is really spot on. You not only had the, the hosting of the Olympics, but in, in the financial sector, you had the 2008 financial crisis in 2008, 2009, where in many ways, China began to step onto the world stage as a financial power, much more obviously, uh, or with much more uh, deliberation and intention. Um, and, you know, the doubts creeping into Western systems because of the uh, the crisis and, and, and the, uh, the faults and the foibles that were seen in the system. So it's fascinating that 2008 is a is a really interesting marker for maybe China emerging onto the world scene in a variety of ways, and, and beginning the rise of China, perhaps even to the point of of confrontation now, where we've got rising tension. Apollo, can can you speak to the audience because we we have an audience that uh, focuses a lot on financial integrity, compliance issues. Uh, they're looking at new technologies, digital currencies, crypto. You spent some time looking at the crypto space, digital currencies, especially in Asia, which have been, you know, hot markets for uh, some of the some of the crypto exchanges. Can can you speak to what you were seeing and and what interested you in that space? Yeah. So the way that we looked at it was this seemed to be like a numbers game, and just the sheer density of some of the countries that I was you know going to. A, because I just love the food and, and it was it was just fun to be there, but also in how quickly they adopted. And when you look at places like Japan and you look at places like South Korea and the speed at which they expect their transactions and the ease of use of some of these digital services, that to me was something that seemed like their adoption of whatever new technologies was coming their way, which I think we're seeing now with 5G across, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But also in the form of how WeChat, Right, the the kind of state-backed Chinese, um, you know, Tencent and Alibaba-based, you know, systems of Alipay and WeChat Pay, and how they've got these centralized databases and also services and goods. Where, you know, when I went to China in this was maybe in two thousand, this was actually last year, and I brought cash with me. I brought some renminbi to try to pay for the taxi from when I crossed the border from Hong Kong into Shenzhen. I couldn't get a taxi because no one would accept cash. And I didn't have any money in my phone because I don't have a WeChat bank account, nor do I have a Chinese bank account. And I was thinking in my head, I'm like, I'm 45 minutes from an English speaking at the time, you know, um, <laughs> a place where you can do whatever you want. And here, literally 45 minutes away, I can't even operate because I, as an American, was not up to speed with the digital transformation of the country. And I, you know, and then obviously, yeah. look, you can pay, you can pay your mortgage from that app. You, you, know, you can do all these things. And you know, the digital payment systems 
in China. I saw a stat when I was at Milken Conference. I think I said this to you, Juan. Eventually, they were like, yeah. you know, from in 2020, the digital payments in China versus the US. I think the US was like, like 147 billion or something, but in China, it's 47 trillion in 2020 was the target. It's just so massive that every single person is utilizing these kind of services and goods in a way that um, transcended. And so <clears throat> on the, I think on the digital currency side, the things that I was seeing, and this again was back in 2017, 2018, kind of this hype cycle uh, was just a, a mass exodus of people trying to identify where and how these, these currencies would play a role in society. And I think as we look today, you know, we see, and, and some of the people, by the way, that I met were so incredibly intelligent. They had left kind of the traditional space and they were going into this, this era where, you know, to me, it really seemed alien and it didn't seem like it made any sense. And I was like, what do you mean everything's backed by code? And it just, but it was fascinating. And I learned a lot, you know, we, we had, um, we had opportunities to kind of explore various businesses, uh, and I, I tell you what, the the space has emerged, I think, again, in a way that I would say people and institutions and organizations are looking at it with more serious eyes versus essentially like a video game that's only for coders and people who, who know how to use these platforms. And I still think it's very, very early days, but, you know, the ability to transact, you know, cross-border I think it's only a matter of time before we see, you know, the U.S. issue their own version of a U.S. dollar that is completely digital, which kind of is. But I mean, I think you know what I mean. Yeah, it's embedded yeah. into the hardware devices and cash is slowly phased out, which we see in other countries. And I think that's going to happen. And I think more importantly, when you hear and read about, you know, um, places like, China, who's placing a heavy emphasis on these types of experiments, uh, it really calls into question, I think maybe perhaps, and this is what we were talking about the other day, was a, a bigger scenario where, where does the US dollar lie in the next 10 to 20 years? And is it going to be the de facto currency of choice across across the world? And is why is it important to have that? Why do we, why do we have the petrodollar? Why are these things? And all of this information <clears throat> is is new to me. I would say within the past kind of seven years of me just diving deep and understanding the way that the world works and why things are the way that they are. And it's it, it's interesting to see, right? I mean, you, you see various countries trying to wean off of the dependence <clears throat> that is the US dollar and trying to find ways to kind of create their own assertion of their own dominance and become much more self-reliant. So it's, it's a changing world. It's a changing era. The rate at which digital adoption occurs, not just in the, I think, the digital asset space, but just digital adoption alone is remarkable. And I'm talking about you go on a subway <clears throat> and you go anywhere in one of these Asia countries. Every single person is transacting digitally in some capacity. And you could argue the same for us here in the US, but we're using it mainly as a social media tool uh, for the most part, right? For the average American. And I think um, that's a little bit of my fear is that, you know, with, with uh, you know, the competitiveness and the nature of the technological advances that exist around the world, um, the U.S. really has to find ways to assert its own focus and funding and resources to ensure both not only the, the um, you know, the growth of this market in this sector, but really this, the safety and security of, 
you know, the average person walking around with a cell phone in their pocket and how that relates to their own data, how it's being used, is that data being weaponized against them to sway their mood, emotion, et cetera. I mean, we can go down a rabbit hole and talk about some of that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> no, Paula, I mean, you raised so many important issues and, and we're seeing a lot of that with, with our client work, a lot of the, the work we do um, on policy issues. You know, two points that, that you raised are really critical. One is, I think, the the legitimacy of these technologies, which were, whether you're talking about cryptocurrency or underlying blockchain technologies or digital currency or digital identity itself, once seen as kind of fringe, interesting technologies to be toyed with or, or experimented with, really becoming mainstream. And, and to your point, the adoption in, in Asia is remarkable, even in places, uh, you know, the use of M-Pesa in, in Kenya and in Africa and uh, South Asian ad adoption as well. So the, the reality is that this is now mainstream to the point where you have, you know, the, the debate among central bank banks around the world around central bank digital currencies. It, it carries the the acronym CBDCs mm -hmm. uh, and what that development looks like. There's a whole bunch of pilots underway around the world. The other thing that's really fascinating about what you ended on is this debate around the acquisition and use of data and analysis tied to the financial system. And of course, what you have right now is emerging a, a, a real tussle between the US and China. Some might even call it the beginnings of, of economic warfare, financial warfare. You know, the US president um, asked the Commerce Department on August 8th to put together uh, rules with respect to prohibited transactions with Tencent and ByteDance, which implicates WeChat and TikTok. Right. It's been much in the news. So everything you've described goes right to the heart or even on the edge of where the conflict and competition is between the U.S. and China or the West and China. Um, so I think I think that's fascinating. Apollo, with, with the couple minutes we have left, just wanted to um, to ask, you know, you've got your new book coming out. You're doing a lot of speaking um, and inspiring uh, young people around uh, issues of identity, reinvention, um, finding a way forward. Can you speak to us about, you know, what is the, what's the future bring for Apollo and what, what are the messages you're trying to convey to folks, especially at a time of, of great dislocation globally and certainly here in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. So my obsession now, I think, given the past 10-year transition for myself is <clears> – <throat> How can I help? How can I guide? How can I give back to the communities uh, that have supported me throughout my career in a way that shares insights and resources and experiences that they can see and learn from and say, you know what, I, I may be in a really challenging situation. I may not have what I believe is mine. I may have something taken away from me. And I think that those experiences can always be used as a lever and a tool just like in sport, right? Your pain can be your greatest driver in your life. And, you know, to me, the American spirit of always getting back up and never counting yourself out is something that we, we sometimes forget about. And then when we see someone who does that, we get ignited in this flame of inspiration again. And it's for me, my life mission, and not to say that I won't explore many other different opportunities and businesses as well, but my true, true calling, my true north is helping people to unlock their own gold medal mindset 
and to recognize that the place that they've failed to look for the answers is sometimes been in front of them the whole time and it's right between their ears. So this transition from writing this book called Hard Pivot, being a, you know radically transparent about the things that I have learned, my wins and my losses during and post-career, I hope will drive more awareness and understanding around why we do what we do why are we driven and take into consideration things like what's happening with this pandemic and turning it into a way and say, you know, this is an opportunity for me as a human, as a family member, as a husband, as a wife, to take a deeper look at myself, recognize what I'm doing on a daily basis. Is it impacting myself, my family, and my communities in a way that I know I can? And then getting back out there, recalibrating that focus and going out on the attack and not sitting back and getting you know, getting stuck in these same uh, kind of negative habitual formations that exist because of the human conditioning element. Instead, taking control of the steering wheel, moving from passenger seat into the driver's seat, recognizing that you can't control what comes at you through the windshield, but what you do and how you respond, not react, but how you respond is going to greatly dictate the way that you live and fulfill your own life. And so that's that's what I love, Juan. That's what I'm passionate about doing, um, not just for young people, but anyone who has had been facing a complete reinvention or a loss of identity or have to pivot and adapt because it's it'll happen. And I think the one thing we know that remains true is when you have some sort of purpose, uh, it can supersede and and override anything else in your life. You just have to flip that switch on. Paul, it's a great message. And, and I know from my own professional experience, I know others that I've interacted with, those, those are going to be really important lessons and messages to, to, to learn and to hear over and over again. Everyone has chapters in their life and everyone has to transition. And with that comes new identities or reinvention. And it's okay to, to try and to fail, uh, but to get back up is really the key. And um, your, your inspiration is really critical. Paulo, before we end, I just, I want to sort of make an open confession to you and to the audience. Uh, how much, I admire you and how much affection I have for you. And part of it is not because I've known you for a long time. And, and frankly, in the COVID era, I can't give you a hug. Um, <laughs> I'm known for giving hugs, Apollo. I can't do that these days. Um, but you, what was always phenomenal about you, um, you, you, know, you were an absolute stud uh, when you were on the ice. And you always performed. Even if you didn't win the race, I mean, you were always gritty and you were always performing. And it was so just energizing to watch you perform and even you know in in hostile environments against great athletes from different countries mm -hmm. um the other thing is you know you you carried the flag and and you know for those of us who count ourselves as um kind of uh, sappy patriots it's always it was always fascinating to see the flag on on your helmet and uh on your sleeve and then to see the flag raised when you would win and all of that is it's important for you and other Olympians to know, you know, brings great joy. Sport brings great joy to life. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the tragedies of this COVID period is the, the inability to enjoy sport the way that we have or, or the disruptions to some of the sports that we're, we're now uh, seeing. But, you know, you bring great joy to families and to the country. Um, and you're a part of that texture and history and story forever. Um, and I just want you to appreciate that. Even as you pivot beyond your Olympian identity, that identity is always with us. And, and I will always have deep admiration and affection for you. I appreciate that. Those are really kind words, Juan. And they mean a lot. You know, I think the 
the Olympic space and the sporting world has has taught us so much. And I, and I can tell you, you know, walking into the opening ceremonies in the 2002 Winter Olympics, only months after September 11th had occurred, that feeling of one country uh, was so unique. And I was 19 years old at the time. And I will always remember walking uh, downtown Salt Lake City and seeing you know, the the security and the support and the armed servicemen and women of this country and seeing them with their night goggles on, on top of roofs, waving to us. And it was just a, it was a unique moment in time. And and for me to be able to experience that, I, I feel deeply grateful and blessed. And and because of that, I will always continue to get back up and, and do my best. So appreciate that. Thank you, Apollo. It's been an honor to have you on this FinCast. I'm sure the listeners loved uh, hearing your insights, and we're going to continue to be fans of yours and follow your career in whatever form it takes. But you will always have friends and admirers at Finn and certainly our listener base. Thank you again, Apollo, for joining us. Listeners, thank you for joining this episode of FinCast. We'll be back to you soon with another episode. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.